I'm John Gormley. Wherever you are today, thanks for checking in here. Let me quickly uh, have a look at the texts because uh, we're hearing just in terms of snowfall, uh, nothing on icy roads in the southeast, but um, here we go. Um, in Regina, thick snow uh, continues to fall. Uh, not getting any. No, okay. Uh, yeah, a number of you have suggested that the perfect time and place, if you want to go for a walk in the snow, Justin Trudeau, would be the city of Regina today because that snow is really coming down. Okay, so a lot of you have been wondering why and how has it come to this on the question of the future of the Canada Pension Plan with Alberta possibly going its own way. Students of history will remember, and I was just a little kid at the time, uh, the creation of the Canada Pension Plan. I want to say it was 1968, 69-ish. I could be wrong on that. But when the CPP was founded, you would have a portion of your income paid mandatorily as an employee. The employer matches. It goes into a fund. And for years, it was a government-run fund. Since 97, it's been pretty well managed by the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. But Quebec was never a part of it. Given what Quebec's historical relationship has been with Canada, autonomy, nation of Quebec, yada, 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 they set up their own plan. At the time in the 60s, on the instituting of the plan, any province was given the opportunity, if it chooses, to proceed with its own plan. Lauren Gunter, the esteemed columnist, uh, Edmonton Sun, and a guy I haven't chatted to in far too long, we find in Edmonton this morning. Hey, good to have you back. Hey, thanks very much. Okay, uh, walk us through on the primer. Like, what is the genesis of the argument, you know, and where does it come from in Alberta to have a look at going alone? Well, I think economically it would make sense. I'm not sure it makes political sense. And, and I think that's ultimately what's going to decide whether this goes ahead or not. But it, it really has come out of the blue. Um, uh, when Jason Kenney was the premier back here from uh, 2019 until uh, he got punted from office last year, uh, he had put together a group uh, led by Janice McKinnon, uh, who had been, of course, the finance minister in Saskatchewan, who looked at um, a number of things, largely to, to, to make Alberta less dependent on federal permission for things. And one of the suggestions that came out, which has floated around in Alberta for a long time, was an Alberta-only pension plan. We go our own, we take the money out of the Canada pension plan that we put in there and set up our own plan because our population is younger you wouldn't have to pay in as much because you'd be in the payment period longer and the payout period less. Um, and you, you know, because of the uh, economy in the province, particularly now with uh, like the federal government discouraging people from uh, companies from investing in oil and gas, uh, then you'd have a, a Alberta maintained fund that could do the investing that uh, that Ottawa now wants us to not do anymore. So I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I think it makes some sense. But it is not, uh, it does not have a groundswell behind it. You know, if you, when you look at Ottawa's attempts to outlaw 
internal combustion engine vehicles. When you look at Ottawa's uh, attempts to make sure that the uh, power grids in, in all the provinces are net zero within 12 years, uh, when you look at a lot of those initiatives, there's instantly 50 or 60 percent of Albertans, as I'm sure there are instantly 50 to 60 percent of Saskatchewanians who are against that. They understand why that's wrong. They, they disagree with it vehemently from the start. But there is no groundswell like that for the pension plan. So really the provincial government's big problem there is that while it may make economic sense, they're starting from zero, not from 60. You make a great point, and, and your argument is, or at least you laid it out, I thought, very well in a column, and there it was right in front of me, 1966, the enabling legislation of CPP, any province is entitled to leave. It takes out everything its residents have ever paid into CPP, uh, payment and employer matching, less everything they've received out of the plan. So that's the basic calculus. And since Alberta has, for a long time, been the biggest contributor of any province, not proportionately, but in absolute terms, the biggest contributor to confederation of any province, there's a lot of money in there that Alberta has put in, much more than what Albertans have taken out in pensions. And that's why the Alberta government has come up with, well, they actually had a third-party actuarial firm do this for them, the, the number that was arrived at was 53% of what is in the Canada Pension Plan Fund would be owed to Alberta under the 1966 formula. Now, you know, your premiers lined up against this. Doug Ford, who's an ally of Alberta, lined up against it in Ontario. Uh, the CPP board has said they are against it. And I, and I guarantee you the feds would take it to court and the Supreme Court, which now is very biased in favor of the federal government in most cases, is more than likely to say, no, 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 you know, that 1966 formula doesn't apply anymore. So Alberta is not going to get 53% of the $500 billion that's in that fund, even if that's what the law says. Uh, but even at that, even if we got $85 billion out, which is the amount that we'd be entitled to proportionate to our percentage of the national population even if we got 85 billion or 100 billion out it probably still makes sense economically but you know you will know because you've talked to tons of economists who tell you that consumption taxes like the carbon tax and the gst are fairer they make more sense economically they can give you all of the technical reasons for why a consumption tax is better than an income tax but still, there's no political will for consumption taxes, and there's no real political will in Alberta for an Alberta pension plan. The people who are most interested in this are Albertans who are at or near retirement age who worry that, well, somehow you're going to mess this up, and I'm not going to get my pension, and I'm, I'm against it. You know. But the, the, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, I mean, you and I are of an age where, you know, I remember well, 70s, early 80s, God, you know, there'll be no pension left, et cetera, et cetera. The CPPIB, I mean, they've had a return every year net of about 10%. So, you know, you've got nearly $600 billion in this fund now. So it's, yeah. by all objective criteria, it works. Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, it, it certainly works better than you or I would have thought it would have in yeah. the 80s. Um, it is nowhere near 
vested to the extent it would have to be to cover the pensions of everyone in Canada. Uh, it, it, it's like, you know, the, the, the public sector pension funds who, that, that have huge liabilities in them, even though they may have tens of billions of dollars in assets. Uh, because they, they, they don't have enough. However much money the CPP Investment Board has, it hasn't got anywhere close to enough yeah. to cover off the pension benefits for everyone in Canada over their lifetime. So, yes, but it's better than it would have been. And I, is it, would it be fundamentally better than, uh, fundamentally better with an Alberta pension plan? Probably not, because the reason the CPP doesn't have all that money in it that it should our political decisions that have been made and the way that governments have spent the incoming contributions for years and years and years, they spent the incoming contributions and simply put IOUs in the fund right. to say, well, we'll pay out when, when the time comes. It's better. It's more stable than that now for sure. And I think the Alberta one would be equally stable, but you know, aside from the fact that you might get right, right now you're paying 9.9% of your, pensionable income. I've forgotten what the upper level cutoff is now, but beyond about, about sixty five about sixty five thousand, I think. Yeah, yeah. You don't yeah, you don't pay pension above that. But you pay nine point nine percent of your income up to that level. If Alberta went on its own, that might come down in Alberta easily to in the seven percent range. Uh, and your benefits could be if the funds properly managed slightly above where they are federally. But, you know, trying how are you going to make that argument at the kitchen table? Mm. Yeah, and that's co- where this sort of issue has to be settled. Lauren Gunter, editorial writer, columnist, Edmonton Sun. So I get the sense, though, a lot of this is even at a higher level of politics than, uh, you know, what the amount is, the portion of the population, the age of the population. Yep. It's just this frustration that you've got an Ottawa with a certain view of the Federation. You've got Quebec as the cherished child. So whether it's policing, whether it's pension, some way to just leverage back a little bit more autonomy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And, and, but I think, as, as I said a little earlier, you know, when you, when you look at the electric vehicle mandate, you look at the clean electricity regime that they're trying to set up, and you look at pipelines, when you look at a whole bunch of other things that Ottawa is doing that irritates the bejeebers out of the provinces, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, there are more than enough fights without creating a new one on pensions that a lot of people are going to resist simply because they're 67 and they retired and they don't want you messing with whatever the amount is that the feds are sending. So would you give this thing... Less than five out of ten chance of ever yep. Uh, happening. Yep, yep. And and if I, I sort of get the sense from the provincial government there, and angling that way too. This is a pet project of the premier's. She has since she was uh, uh, an employee of the Fraser Institute back in the nineteen nineties, seen the economic sense of this, and still believes firmly that in an ideal world it makes sense. But I think the political reality of it is. They're just going to let it wither on the vine. It, this home heating oil carbon uh, tax carboat thing has come along at the right time for them because it took all the wind out of the pension issue. And if they're smart, once that carbon issue, the carbon tax issue has run its course, 
they won't bring back the pension issue in anywhere near the form that it was in before. Always good, my friend. Thanks for sharing some time this morning. You bet. Always fun. Lauren Gunter in Edmonton, columnist with the Edmonton Sun. So you've heard the argument. And Alberta, and he makes the point in his column that even back in the huge oil recession of the 1980s, you remember a thing called the National Energy Program by a prime minister named Trudeau that drove Alberta to its knees. Saskatchewan, too, a bit, but far less so than Alberta. Even at that time, Alberta's population was about 9.5% of Canada. They contributed 12% of all the contributions that year in the early 80s into CPP. Last decade, Alberta's population has been about 11% of the country. Their contributions, almost 17%. So on the economics, you can see, but more than this, I think it's politics. And Gunter makes an interesting point. Once this carbon tax brouhaha blows over, you just might not hear anything more from the Alberta government on going its own way on CPP. Thoughts. Is this something that you think is a starter? You think it's a Saskatchewan starter? Premier Moe has been very clear. He doesn't agree with it. He thinks Saskatchewan will stay in the national CPP plan, Canada Pension Plan. What about you? 877-332-8255. This is 650-CKOM and 980-CJME. I'm John Gormley. This, I was just chatting on what you think the future of the Canada Pension Plan will be with Alberta, without Alberta. Uh, Lauren Gunter, who argues fairly compellingly in his column that there's a lot of self-interest going around. Economically, he says it would make perfect sense, Alberta. Take out everything you've put in over the years to Canada Pension, minus everything that's been paid out, and the calculus that an Alberta set of actuaries came up with was a significant chunk, about half of the $575 billion in the CPP today. Even, he argues, if you took just the population proportion, give Alberta 85, 100 billion, somewhere in that range, the Alberta Investment Management Corps, AIM, it's called, they invest uh, public funds, they invest uh, other revenues in Alberta, could well manage a made in Alberta pension plan. But he thinks a lot of it's politics, and it will pass. Uh, Tom in Regina, thanks for hanging on, sir. Uh, your sense of the CPP and the Prairie Provinces. Well, John, I did a report on the CPP in 2019, so I'm kind of well-versed in, in how it, they do it. There's only two contributor provincial contributors in Canada that put in more than we take out. Uh, Ontario is on the edge, and that's Saskatchewan and Alberta. If we went on our own, premiums would drop, and the amount of money coming back to the contributors would go up. Uh, contributions in the Atlantic would just about have to triple uh, just to meet the demands. BC is on, it's all based on demographic, and right. BC is now over the edge where they have more people taking out than putting in. Manitoba's in big trouble. And uh, so it makes sense for us. And it's not only the, contrib the contributions, John. It's people should look into the CPP 
investment board and see where it's invested in. The CPP has invested a lot into China, financing infrastructure projects in China. Why isn't that money being used here to finance infrastructure? They could work that out so there'd be, you know, like a P3 thing within uh, a locally run investment board. There's so many things that could be done. And if you go back when Stephen Harper was prime minister, there was $12 billion invested in China. Since Trudeau's came in, it's over $200 billion. That's risky. That's a good point. There is a question of risk anytime, particularly as you've watched China start to have some economic challenges. Help me out. When we say Alberta contributes more and it's because of age, how does that work? Well, it's, it's the actuary reports spell it out pretty easy that it's, it's uh, who's contributing, who's going to be contributing later. And uh, it's all in favor of Saskatchewan and Alberta. We have the youngest demographics in Canada, Saskatchewan and Alberta. So, so, on- so we invest, we start investing earlier, we invest later, so we end up putting more money in than we get back. Well, it's based on the, on the demographic. we got more people coming up to invest in. Okay. Good point. I thank you for that, sir. I'm John Gormley. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. I'm John Gormley. Many stories on the go today. Let me just uh, go back over to the handy text screen. If you're giving me an update, and uh, a lot of you southeast Saskatchewan, areas around Regina, pretty snowy still. A highway hotline. Uh, now we're starting to look at some updates. Depending on where you are on the roads, check it out. Caution at the very least, and in some cases you may want to forego or uh, rearrange some plans for now. Oh, oh, by the way, before we move off this pension one, <laughs> sorry, I have become so cynical about what passes for the media in this country. So Alberta went off and hired an actuarial firm to say, if they left the Canada Pension Plan, which any province can do, and the agreement back in 1966 was pretty simple, everything paid in by the people of your province and the businesses of your province, so that 9 10% of your pay plus 11.5% of the employer's contribution. So if a province wants to pull out, they take everything they've paid in and employer-matched out. And you subtract anything that's been paid to Albertans already in their pension. So you've got this history, 1966 till the present. You've got this big fund, $575 billion. So Alberta gets an actuarial fund. And here's where I'm chortling at the media. So this report comes back saying of $575 billion in CPP, $334 billion would be the amount Alberta could take out. Now, that would cause untold hurt. So what was this firm that clearly got it so wrong? I mean, every single liberal left-wing economist in the country says, ah, it's nonsense, I'm, a, I'm not an actuary, but I'm an economist, and I'll tell you it doesn't work. The CBC reports it was the TELUS-owned LifeWorks. What is the TELUS? TELUS is the big phone company. TELUS did buy out LifeWorks. 
Do you know what LifeWorks used to be? Morneau Chappelle. Remember Bill Morneau, beloved by the CBC, revered as the angel that he was because he was a liberal cabinet minister? So the CBC refers to the telesowned LifeWorks. Well, Morneau Chappelle is a pretty reputable, respected benefits agency awash in actuaries. So I just laughed when I, because uh, when I prep for a segment, I'll read different reports to try to get different perspectives. And I was reading Gunter's column, and uh, he just talked about the over half of the CPP fund that would be heading Alberta's way. It's not going to happen. And I think, as we talked about, a lot of it has got much more to do with politics than anything else. It should tell you something, and this uh, was forged in tragedy, but it's not just the James Smith Cree Nation massacre and the responsibility of Sanderson, Miles Sanderson, who murdered a dozen people, including his brother, while he had an expired warrant. This is, when you talk to police officers, a very common thing. Whether it's a warrant issued through the National Parole Board because they've violated release terms, they've already been in prison, they're now on parole, whether it's a warrant issued for failing to comply with a probation order, whether it's a warrant issued because they didn't show up to court, there are many times and ways that warrants are issued. In the case of the James Smith Cree Nation and the murder of the man next door in Weldon, Sanderson was a very, very violent and dangerous individual. But we've often been reminded that career criminals, while they elude the police, still find a weird and novel way to collect their welfare payments, collect their housing payments. So it was discussed over a year ago in Saskatchewan that clearly there had to be some disconnect. If you are a person with a warrant outstanding, why and how would you still be able to be in receipt of social services benefits? Well, we had more elaboration on this yesterday. The Ministry of Corrections provincially announced that since the 1st of November, there is a specific warrant intelligence team that's been operating in Saskatchewan. Funded by government, it is responsible for, first of all, attempting to apprehend people, but of course the RCMP have the warrant uh, suppression team, and there's city and RCMP officers out now redoubling their efforts to hunt down people with warrants, but the warrant intelligence team pulls together data. So does somebody appear on the court records as having a warrant? Does somebody appear on government social service records as having money coming their way every month? If that's the case, the two shall be disconnected. So families of career criminals, families of career criminals with warrants outstanding may still uh, be in receipt of social service benefits, but the warrant intelligence team, according to the government, is being used to ensure that, quote, government benefits are not being used to perpetuate criminal lifestyles. And obviously this uh, warrant intelligence team would then be working with the warrant suppression group in the RCMP to uh, try to get more intel on where these people are showing up. And it is a 
tragedy that it took the James Smith Cree Nation uh, massacre for this to happen, but it's been going on for many, many years, and that's sad. Uh, Speaking of going easy on criminals, there's a clearly clumsy segue. Let's talk about the Supreme Court of Canada, shall we? I was away yesterday, couldn't respond to the Friday court decision. The Supremes have found yet a new way to describe cruel and unusual punishment. This is a Supreme Court that prefers to strike down so-called mandatory minimum sentences. They have not struck down and will not strike down the best-known mandatory minimum sentence, which is murder. You're convicted of murder, first or second degree, you mandatorily must do a life sentence. Now, there are attachments for parole eligibility. The dreaded, dark, evil overlord Stephen Harper brought in a number of mandatory minimums, from gun crime to sexual offenses to other things. The Supreme Court has struck down at least four of the Harper mandatory minimums, the King's Bench and appellate court levels in, I think it's about 50-plus cases, have also struck them down. Judges don't like mandatory minimums. So the latest mandatory minimum, because it's cruel and unusual punishment, is for somebody convicted of child luring. So the sentence, if you have lured a child for sexual purposes, will be up to the individual judge rather than to Parliament. Now, Interestingly enough, in the cases that were uh, adjudged or decided on Friday, and the court did this as a kind of, I'm not going to impugn why they did it, but they strike down the mandatory minimum and say, oh, but by the way, you should get a more serious sentence for what you did to lure that child. So they were showing off judicial discretion. But the National Post writes, and I, I chuckled at this, yes, judges should be involved individually in determining imprisonment. But it's not entirely clear just how much imprisonment the Supreme Court thinks is appropriate. Now, you and I know they weakened the bail laws, uh, stressed them to the point of irrelevancy, in, in my view. And notoriously, you remember this, just last year, this same Supreme Court said, for multiple murderers of police officers, multiple first-degree murderers, planned and deliberate. Do you remember, again, the dreaded Stephen Harper allowed consecutive parole ineligibility? So you only got one life sentence, but for every person you killed, your parole ineligibility was 25 years, plus 25 and plus and on. Now, the judges had some discretion, but you had people who were mass murderers of policemen in Moncton, of victims and families, going to jail for life, but no parole eligibility for 75 years. Supreme Court of Canada struck that down because it was cruel and unusual to expect a mass killer to die in jail. It was cruel and unusual to deny that offender the hope that one day they might be released. So this is a Supreme Court of Canada that has really taken after mandatory minimums, but this preference to describe cruel and unusual punishment as being in jail too long, I think makes a lot of us think. Um, 
even other Harper mandatory sentences. Do you remember the one where if you are a sex offender with two or more offenses, so this isn't the one-off case, two or more sex offenses, you are automatically placed on the sex offender registry. Supreme Court of Canada struck that one down two weeks ago because it would be up to an individual judge to decide because you could be a repeat sex offender, but you might be completely capable of rehabilitation. So it would be so unfair to you if you were on the sex offender registry. Well, Supreme Court Friday adds mandatory minimums for child luring unconstitutional. 877-332-8255. This is 650-CKOM and 980-CJME. I'm John Gormley. Uh, hey, pull up Highway's hotline. Uh, yeah, things have changed a bit. Sorry, Highway singular hotline. Uh, lots of incidents, I put in quotes, uh, as you head straight south of Regina uh, down to Plentywood. Uh, lots on Highway 6 of incidents reported. Uh, although still... Winter conditions exist. No roads have been closed yet in the province. And there is lots of the uh, dashed lines, which is poor visibility. So that's a pretty big part of winter driving. Poor visibility uh, throughout the uh, Diefenbaker Lake area. Poor visibility entire southwest and uh, in and out of Regina. Uh, So in addition to the incidents straight south on Highway 6, also a number of incidents between... Gull Lake and uh, Moose Jaw, Regina. So Highway 1, a fair number of incidents. Although the uh, winter conditions exist, continues to be the watchword. So if you're driving, make sure you check it out and just slow down and take those precautionary steps. Uh, In Regina, both the underpasses at Albert Street and Broad, heavy traffic southbound, people can't get up because the city hasn't sanded anything. Highway 11, Bethune to Regina, slushy, slippery, take care, says Rob in Regina. So those are a few of the reports. And apparently Bethune into Regina, uh, as Rob reports, uh, pretty bad. But as you get going to Saskatoon past Bethune, you're just into uh, winter driving conditions. So that's what we know. Uh, Interesting, as we started the show today, in fact, top of the hour, we're going to be checking in with Signe Arneson, who we haven't talked to in ages. Uh, She heads up the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. They've got a new report out on the susceptibility of young children online to luring, to pornography, to action that is showing a new study of theirs. This isn't going away. It isn't getting better. Signe Arneson will be here. And as you've been hearing me talk about earlier, in the 11 o'clock hour, do you find uh, your local coffee shop, and it can even be a Timmy's or a McDonald's, you can't get a seat because Buddy is sitting there all day long with her or his laptop open. They got their headphones in. Now, sometimes they even have been able to go Zoom meetings while sitting in a coffee shop. So you get to actually hear them talking. But even if they're, yeah, yeah, but if they're quiet, you're thinking, I'd love to sit down and grab a coffee. I wanted to meet somebody here. No, I don't want to get in the way of you writing that literary magnum opus, the story of your life. 
We'll talk about that. Some coffee shops have finally decided, and you know it always happens this way, pure economics. They're having trouble paying the bills from people hoarding seats in coffee shops, buying no coffee, and uh, not putting anything back into the business. So we started this morning on the trio of stories. Uh, First one comes from the weekend, the uh, party convention for the Sask Party. Premier Mo didn't give details. Suffice it to say, the legislature will be asked to pass enabling legislation to permit Sask Energy as of January the 1st, if there isn't a break on the carbon tax for heating your home, to not charge the carbon tax and not remit it. So Premier uh, didn't give details, but legislation will be coming in this fall sitting of the House. The other two big stories, House of Commons yesterday defeats 186 to 135, a conservative motion that wasn't binding, but would have declared the government should give a price break on the carbon tax to all home heating in Canada. And the NDP, which has been the party most allied with the Liberals, voted with the Conservatives. It was the Bloc Quebecois that jumped in, voted with the Liberals. And of course, even the Bloc, as they talked about it, they said, well, this motion, quote, has no impact on Quebec. Of course it wouldn't. Quebec doesn't pay a carbon tax. But they think climate is so important that you must be constant and patient and determined. And you don't um, treat the environment like a fancy thing. You've got to stay resolute on the carbon tax for everybody else except you in Quebec. So that was uh, Yves-Francois Blanchette, infuriating Canadians once again. And then the other big story is that was going down uh, a joint statement unanimously from all of the premiers, liberal, conservative, new Democrat, calling on Ottawa to exempt carbon tax on all home heating sources across the country. And of course... That will be transmitted to Ottawa, who will do nothing. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.